We, we, we're starting a new subject today, psychology. Uh, everybody, when you hear psychology, goes, oh, psychology, you know. The Bible and psychology as though they're two great big enemies, you know. We don't want to talk about psychology, you know, because psychology is really man's answer to man's problem. You know, if you look at secular psychology, secular psychology actually looks at the dilemma or the condition of man and tries to bring a solution for man without actually going to God. So that's why psychology, um, secular psychology is our big enemy or people think that it's a big enemy. But the word psychology really comes from the word suki, which is the word for soul. And really psychology as a word is not a dangerous word. It just means a study of the soul of man or a study of man. So when we're looking at psychology, we're not looking at secular psychology here. So I'm not going to take you down through the, the annuals of uh, Nietzsche or Freud or Maslow or any of the other people who've, who've got a lot of ideas about how man is, is where he is and why he is where he is. We're not going anywhere near that stuff. We're just going to talk about psychology from the Bible's point of view. We're going to look at the biblical perspective of humanity and the human condition as we are taught it in the Bible. So what is biblical psychology? Biblical psychology is the study of the nature of human beings as portrayed by the Bible. So that's what we're going to do. In the beginning, we start off with man being created, and that's how we believe it. We didn't evolve. We were created. We were created out of dust. God made us into a lump of clay. He began. He formed the man, and then he breathed life into him. And so we have two things happening here. We have in Genesis chapter 2, he says, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So when we're talking about the condition of man, we are not talking about man as being just an animal or a body or a person who has an, um, some sort of a, an imagined soul. We believe that the soul of man is very real. The immaterial part is very real. You see, in the world, the world says that man, if you're an evolutionist, man is just an accident that happened out of some sort of primeval uh, pool of, of evolution that just happened to happen and so the soul the immaterial part of man is just nothing there is nothing there it's just an excuse for existence but the bible says the spirit of man or the soul of man was created just like the body of was man created and so when we talk about man we're talking about a body and we're talking about a spirit so what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about the words that describe to start off with anyway the words that describe how we are or what we are made of so one of the words that we we look at the bible is the word body which is the word soma and it talks about the physiological side of it everybody grab your arm that's your body that's your body it's body parts but you live inside your body you look out the windows of your eyes. The thing that looks out the windows of your eyes is your soul. It's your spirit. Your body is your container and your spirit lives within your body. So we're going to look at the material part and the immaterial part of man. The part that is tangible and the part that is not tangible. We have two parts. We have the physical part and we have the spiritual part. And so we have the word flesh in the Bible. The word flesh 
has two ideas in it. When you see and you read in the King James Version the word flesh, it talks about the soft substance of the living body. That's the part that you're made with. This part here is called the flesh. However, it also talks about the immaterial part. And I want you to look at this. When it talks about the immaterial part, this is what the definition for the word of flesh for the immaterial part. It talks about your hunger and your thirst and your passions. That's part of your flesh. It says there that it's the sensuous nature of man, the animal nature, or the part of us that feels hunger, feels thirst, feels sexual drives. That sort of part of us is part of the flesh. And know what it says. It says, without any suggestion of depravity. Now, I want to make, take that and make a note of that so that you understand that just because you have hunger pains doesn't mean that you are evil. Just because you have thirst doesn't mean that you are evil. And just because you have sexual desire doesn't mean that you are evil. That's just part of what you're created with. Your body actually produces those things. When your body is hungry and it needs more sustenance, it creates the feeling of hunger. When your body needs more drink, it creates the sense of thirst and you go and feel some... And your body creates certain passions to do certain things. That's all connected with the flesh. The flesh, the soft part of your body, is producing the immaterial part of passion in your body. So they are two things that are called flesh. So in the Bible, we see those two things there quite clearly. Flesh as in body and flesh describing that immaterial part of us, which is part to do with the part that is natural to our human bodies. They're separate from God it's not of God it's separate it's part of our body so it's how we are it's the immaterial part another word for the immaterial part is called mind and understanding if you remember the word that Jesus said they asked him Jesus what's the greatest commandment and and Jesus says that there is one God and you must love him with all your mind with all your heart with all your soul with all your strength So he actually talks about all these immaterial parts within us when he describes how we've got to love God. And so he uses the idea of mind and understanding. In one place he says, you have to love God with all your mind. In another place, I think it's in Matthew, he says, you have to love God with all your understanding. It's the same passage of Scripture, but they use different words. And so these two words describe some part of our immaterial part. It's the part of your mind. You can't actually cut into the brain and find it. It's a immaterial so it's not there when you look at the flesh but it's there because it's real because you're actually thinking about what I'm saying you're actually hearing what I'm saying you're actually processing what I'm saying there's a real immaterial part that lives inside of you and the word mind and understanding means thoughts or purposes it's the running together or flowing together now you and I know that when we wake up in the morning and we're thinking about the day to come we have a process or running of thoughts that's the mind in action. It runs through the things that we've got to do today. We might be driving and we might be thinking about what's going to happen when we get to work and we're running through the process. That's our mind activating. You know, when you're dead, that's not happening. It's just nothing there. In your body, it's stopped. You know, your mind when you're alive, it's running and activated through that. It's connected with knowledge and the mind has the faculty of understanding. It also has the faculty of feeling and desire. You'll find that some of these words that describe the immaterial part of us lap over each other. It's like because we can't actually see it and open it up and find it, there's a lot, a, a lot of lapping that goes on because we're trying to decide you know, or describe what is actually in us. One of the words that Jesus has used is the word strength, that you love the Lord with all your strength. 
And that's just not physical strength that you've got. See here, I mean, what gets that girl up that cliff? Is, is it the physical strength that she has? Or is it the drive within her that actually determines her to actually do that, that determination of attitude? So there we have strength. It's not just the ability to do something like the strength in the body. It's the will and the attitude to drive oneself to do it. We see that beautiful strength in, in Shireen. She goes to the hospital. We pray for her. And we see God give her strength in her spirit. And we see her worshiping God with her victorious attitude in, in, in hospital because God gives her the strength and her strength now. She honors God with her strength and she stands up and gives praise to God because of what he's done in her life. It's that strength that's coming out of her. Another word that they use is the word heart. It's that center organ of our physical body. You stop the heart, you generally die. It's also the center of our spiritual life. And so the Bible uses it in both those ways. It talks about the vigor and the sense of physical life, the heart that beats within us. It also talks about the seat of our spiritual life, the part where we understand God, the part that we have an intuitive understanding of the things of God. It's the core part of us, the emotional part, the spiritual part. It's our center, the core of us, spiritually. We have the word soul, which also describes something of ourselves. And the word soul is the seed of feelings, desires, affections, and aversions. She's screwing her face up because she sucked a lemon. She doesn't like lemons. She's saying, ooh, I hate lemons. So that's part of the soulless response. Now, there are two kinds of thought that are, and and I'm not going to go into them at great depth here, but I'm going to just, there's two views of this. We can be compartmentalized like the Trinity into three parts, a body, a soul, and a spirit. Just, we can break ourselves up into three. And that's a very simple and a very clear way of understanding it. The body has to do with the flesh part of us. The spirit has to do with our worshipping God, the way we treat God. And the soul has to do with the emotions and all the things that are uh, uh, um, uh, affected by emotions. It's a good and simple way of understanding us as human beings, that we are three parts. And you won't go too far wrong if you have that or hold that as a conviction as like you know if you're describing what a uh, what a man or a woman is like they're made up of three parts body soul and spirit however what i want to tell you is that the scripture doesn't have that as it clearly is defined as that yes there is a division between soul and spirit but the scripture can't really show since the word of god is so sharp that it can divide where you can't divide between soul and spirit and joints and marrow and thoughts and intents. Like, what's the thought and intent? What's the difference between a thought and an intent? It's like it's pretty hard. It's all part of the mind process. You know, they're both thoughts. But the Word of God can divide. So while I say it's hard to divide those things, we see divisions there. It's not important what you think, whether you're what they call a dichotomist, you're believing in two parts, the physical part and the immaterial part and just have that as your view or whether you're a trichotomist whether you believe in that you're a body and you're a soul and you're spirit both of you go to heaven it doesn't matter what you believe it's one of those things that you just have to study for yourself to find out what you're comfortable with in my in the beginning of my life i was a stern and staunch trichotomist i read of all of uh, watchman knee's books about body soul and spirit and it and it works for me it worked for me when i read those and i read it i could see it in the scripture i went to bible college and then i had to argue to defend that view from scripture and that's when i changed my mind so i i mean i've got i've been in both camps i i i believe that we are tripart and i also believe that we are bipart 
2. So I'm just showing you the complexities of, of the Word of God when we try to describe what the immaterial part of us are. So that's the soul. The other word that we have is the word spirit. The word for spirit in the, in the uh, Old Testament is the word ruach. And God breathed into man the breath of life. He breathed in the ruach, the breath. And man became a living soul, nephesh. So he became a living soul by that breath, the ruach of God. So God's spirit was breathed into man and man began to live. He began to have a soul when the breath of God, the ruach of God was breathed into him. In the New Testament, we use the word pneuma. Now the Greek, that's just where you get the word pneumatic drill from. You know, a pneumatic drill is a drill that is driven by air. You know, you've got a compressor on the side and it drives the, drives the screw gun or the nail gun with air. It's a pneumatic drill. Uh, the word pneuma in the Greek means to wind, to wind. It's the same word as the ruach, but it's in the Greek. And it means to breathe into it. And we have life because the Holy Spirit breathes into us. We were born again of the Spirit of God because God breathed into his pneuma into our lives. So it talks about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Numa, the Holy Spirit. He is the Holy Wind. He is the Holy Breath of God. So as God breathes into man in the book of Genesis, he breathes his Holy Spirit into man. He breathes life into man. This is what the words here that the Bible describe, the immaterial part of humanity. And lastly, we have the word mind. Mind, that's that part of us that is inside of us that we think that's a whole lot of things. It's sort of that part that we wish, part that we determine from, part that has choice, part that has desire. Now, I'm not sure how they all break down and what part is what. I I could not sit down and say to you where heart begins and soul ends and where soul begins and spirit begins you know i could say well it's all emotion soul is all emotion but then mary says my god my soul doth magnify the lord and my spirit doth rejoice in christ my savior and she just twists them around i mean if i I said well soul is for rejoicing and spirit is for magnifying she just got it mixed up didn't she she mixed them around Sometimes we do that in praying. We say, Lord Jesus, thank you, Father. It's like, oh, well, he just called Jesus my Father, but he's not my Father, he's really my brother. Holy Spirit, help me. Um, you know, and all of a sudden we're praying, in the, and, and we get them all mixed up, don't we? And God just says, I don't care. You got me either way, you know, if you're calling me in the name of Jesus or you're calling me Holy Father, it doesn't really matter. He says, I'm listening to you. And so it doesn't matter if you get your words all mixed up, friends. In the end of the exercise, this is, not, this is not about getting saved here. This is about trying to understand the immaterial part of us. Okay, so it's, it's open to conjecture and you'll find that. So what happened to man? Well, in Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 day, we, we get this idea that something seriously uh, wrong happened to man. And here we get the first start in, the, in this uh, book of Genesis. Now, we believe that Genesis, Genesis is an actual, literal account of what actually took place. That's our 
firm and solid belief. There was an actual Adam and there was an actual Eve. We, they are the actual parents of all mankind. That is from whom we came from. Every tribe and every nation came from Adam and Eve and came down through Noah and then from Noah's children, we are descendants of Noah's children. We believe that. So our fathers, father, 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 right back, Adam, he's now created in the garden and he's been told that he's not to eat of the tree. He's communicated to his wife that God the Father has told him not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day that you do eat of that tree, you are surely going to die. And here we have in Genesis chapter 3, the devil comes into the garden and he starts to deceive the immaterial part of humanity. So here we have it. Now the servant was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God has made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the servant, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. So she was actually able to communicate quite succinctly the thing that Adam was told from God. So we know that Adam had actually told her, hey, there's one tree in the middle of the garden, don't touch it, love, because this thing called death is going to come upon us if you do. I'm not sure whether they knew what death was. I don't even think that they would even have conceived what death was. I mean, imagine if you say to your child who's, who's there and you said, you know, um, one day you're going to cohabit or one day you're going to, uh, and you, 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 you share something that their mind couldn't conceive. You wonder whether they can conceive what the idea of death was. So it was just purely not fear that was going to motivate them, but love for God that would motivate their obedience. They wouldn't be fearful of death because they didn't know what death was. So it's not like, oh, I better obey, otherwise God is going to death me. Like, I, I won't want that to happen. I don't want to do the bad thing because I might go to hell. You know, no, no. This whole thing was premised on how much do you love God? Not what you're scared of because they didn't know what death was. They wouldn't be scared of death. So here they are, they're told they're not to eat because this thing would happen to them. But God told them and they ought to follow God because they love God the immaterial part now we're talking about is being deceived the body is the body the body has desires and we're going to see how they start to affect the woman's choice and the man's choice but really it's the immaterial part that's being deceived now you shall surely not die the serpent said to the woman So immediately it tells the woman a lie. That would be the first lie that she's ever heard. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, so what's happening here? The material part with its desires now is actively working in her to try and undermine the immaterial part that she knows should be there governing her. So now she is told to look at the tree and the immaterial part of her, which is governed by her body, that's her flesh, which is not depraved, now looks at the thing and says, it looks good to eat. So the devil uses something that's very normal and very natural 
to deceive her spiritually. He says, look. She says, you know, it looks good for food. And it was pleasing to the eye. It looked nice. You know, it looked kind of juicy, just the way that the juice set on it, you know, in the morning. Maybe it was the morning, you know. And the way that the sun glistened through it and it was all, look, I tasted a peach and it looked somewhat like that and that was delicious. And I tasted a pear the other day and that was just yum. You know, I peeled a banana off the tree down the other and that was just delightful. I had plums and I had peaches and I had orangutan. Oh, I, I, that looks just as nice as all the others. And it looks like it's got lots of juicy sweetness in it. And it was desirable to make one wise, make one wise. And so she thought, you know, I like it, become wise from this too. And so you see this immaterial part of her, which is connected to her body, now is speaking to her. The devil's not actually talking to her now. She's talking to herself. Notice that. The devil just shows the idea there. and She takes the idea and develops it. She's talking to herself now about how good this looks. So she took some and ate it. Oh, it would have been good if we'd stopped there and said, okay, Adam says, ah, I'm not touching that, put his foot down. It might have been a different outcome. But what's in Adam now that makes him take it off her and eat it himself? Well, obviously, this material part is now speaking to his immaterial part. says, you know that woman? Whoa, that woman, yeah, she's just the best. I've never seen another woman just like her, you know. This woman is the greatest thing in my life, you know, and she's offering me something I would never want to disappoint this gorgeous thing that's come into my life. So now his physical body is speaking to the immaterial part of his flesh and says, don't disappoint this love of your life. He forgets the love that he has with God. He lets the love of the woman control him then. And he takes the food and he eats it. So you see the dynamic happening there. The dynamic between the flesh, the physical, the flesh, the immaterial, and the spirit. This is this dynamic. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. They... they the, up until that point of time, they hadn't recognized that they hadn't dressed in the morning. Now they're awake. They're looking at each other and say, hey, you haven't got any clothes on. He says, neither of you. Oh, we must be naked. They somehow realized what nakedness was all about. And so they decided this is not a good thing. You know, we're suddenly feeling a sense of nakedness, which is a sense of guilt and exposure, vulnerability. And you know what? We better make some fig leaf aprons to sort of cover up ourselves so that we don't embarrass each other. And so they sew some fig leaves together and hid in the garden. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord. That's the word of God. It's probably Jesus because the word of God is the voice of God, is the sound of God. Walking in the garden, in the cool of the garden in the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
So they're hiding there. First time ever. Why would they hide? Well, they had this awareness that they had broken something in their relationship with the voice of God who is coming to walk in the garden with them. They recognized that where they were, they were undone. They recognized that where they were, they had sinned. They recognized that what was happening in their life was exposing themselves. And they knew that that was... They they didn't try and hide it. They did the natural thing. When you do something wrong, they did the natural thing. Hide and cover up. And the Lord God called to man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Of course, the next question is, who told you you were naked? How do you know that? I mean, every other night I've come and talked in the garden with you both. You've never even talked about that. I mean, why is tonight different from last night? I mean, why is it different now that we're walking in the garden? Every other day I've walked in the garden and it's not been any issue with regard to the fact that you've got no clothes on. Why now have you got an issue with that? Who told you you were naked? You see, something had changed on the inside. Something had changed in the immaterial part of man. Something had changed. They're physically the same, but immaterially something had changed. Something had happened inside that had changed inside of them when they did that thing against God. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit to eat, and so I ate it. Well, that's the very first thing that you start doing when you're caught. You know, what you do is you blame someone else. It's always the best thing if you've got a woman you can blame. It's the woman you gave me, God. I mean, it's really your fault, God, because if you didn't want me to fall, you wouldn't have given me this woman who gave me the fruit. And of course, he goes on and asks her, and she blames the devil and the serpent. And Well, what can the serpent do? Well, it was actually me. (laughs) I messed your little tree up, God. So we have a problem. It's called a sin problem. You know, you can go and you can ask anybody you like about the condition of humanity. All humans have guilt. Guilt is the pain of the soul when the soul has broken the law of God. Physical pain is a pain that you feel when you break your physical body. Guilt is the pain that you feel when you break something spiritual. So the guilt... It's common to all men of all nations. It's common to us when we break the law of God. Now, psychology in the world would say there is no God, so there's no breaking of law, so get rid of your guilt. But we can't, can't seem to do that. We can't seem to eradicate it. It seems to be part of the way we were created. God made it something that would come up every time we did something wrong. It would come up until we get so hard inside that we don't feel guilt anymore and we conscience, our conscience is dead. We do whatever we want. And then humanity can't handle you if you've got no conscience because you'll break all the laws of the land. So we'll actually have to put you in a box somewhere with bars in front of it because you don't have a conscience and you don't care. So you'd do anything. But men have conscience because that's part of the fall. It's part of what happens. So what is sin? The Old Testament word for sin means to, it's a miss, a misstep. 
like if I'm going to step inside and sometimes I miss the step because I've got my funny glasses on and I can't exactly see where the step and I step in the wrong place and oh yesterday before I went to the wedding at Morgan and Caitlin's wedding I, I was walking around the side of the car and I stepped in the wrong and I, I misstepped and I charred my leg I thought oh what, what happened I misstepped I just took a wrong step it's a slip of the foot the New Testament word for sin is harmatia it means it's without a share in. You don't have a share. To miss the mark. So if you had a, um, if you had a ball here and I put the hoop down and I said, I'm going to throw this ball through the hoop and I had a shot and it bounced on the side of it but then bounced out, I missed the mark. If I had an arrow and I shot the arrow towards the bullseye and I missed the arrow, the bullseye had hit to the side of it, I missed the mark. Sin is missing the mark. What's the mark? God's laws are the mark. It's what God requires you to hit. Obedience to God is the mark. When you don't uh, give obedience to God, you miss the mark. To err, to be mistaken, to miss or wander from the path of uprightness and honor and to do so and to go wrong, to wander from the law of God, to violate God's law is sin. So we have a sin problem. This is the sin problem. It's, it's endemic. If you want to understand what the problem with humanity is, you go, come onto the street with us. Look, when you're standing preaching on the street and people start shouting at you and abusing you, the, you know, the problem is they love their sin. They want to sin. They don't want you to tell them that there's consequences for sin. Or they feel guilty about you preaching, so they want to stop you because it hurts too much to hear you. Stop saying that stop saying it i don't want to hear it anymore i'm going to go hide in the bush i don't want to hear that i've sinned james says and this is the sin problem we're going to talk about how we sin now he says blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved he will receive the crown of life which the lord has promised to those who love him he says you've got to resist temptation you've got to endure through those hard times And then he goes on and explains what temptation looks like. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So he said, Don't say God's tempting you because it's not God. It's the devil or it's yourself. You can tempt yourself or the devil can tempt you. Either way, but it's not God. God wants you to resist temptation. He wants you to stand strong. He wants you to fight that battle. He wants you to win that battle. He wants you to overcome. He doesn't want you to give in. He doesn't want you to quit. He doesn't want you to to back off from the fight. He wants you to win the fight. So how is it when we get tempted? James says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Now, okay, here's where we look at our flesh again. Remember, we have our flesh, our physical bodies, and we have our flesh, our immaterial part, which is the desires the hunger and the feelings and the passions now the niv says and it says incorrectly it says when he is drawn away by his evil desire there's nowhere in the text of the original script where it says evil desire because those desires the flesh are not evil they are normal it's just do what you do with normal desire Look, you have a sexual appetite. If you didn't, we'd have no babies here. So we've got babies here. So people have a sexual appetite. They want to have babies. Okay. Does having a sexual appetite mean that you are sinning? Of course not. But is the wrong use of a sexual appetite sinning? 
Absolutely. If you are having food, is food, eating food sinful? Absolutely not. However, are there ways to eat and methods of eating that are bad? This gluttony is bad. If you overeat, it's bad. It's a sin. Drinking is not wrong. You have thirst and you, you, you drink, but if you get drunk, drink too much, it's wrong. So you see quite clearly there that the appetite is, there's nothing wrong with the appetite. That's just part of the physical body. What's wrong with the appetite is when the appetite takes control and controls you and says, do this thing. And you are in control, being controlled by the appetite. You are not in control of the appetite. You understand that? So when the Bible says you are drawn away by your own lust and desires, it actually says that your immaterial flesh part of you, which is part of your body, which is not depraved, which is quite normal, is actually talking to you like it talked to Eve. Look at the food. It looks good for food. It's your immaterial part speaking to you and says, let me control you rather than the Spirit of God control you. So when you feel that temptation, it's not necessarily bad, that thing that you're feeling. It's a choice that you're being brought to. A choice of who will you serve? My flesh, the immaterial part of my flesh, which is my desires, or will I serve God who is the Spirit who enlives me? He says, this is the immaterial and the material part of flesh. Here's the problem. He says, then when desire has conceived, so if you say, okay, let's have this thing. We're here and then there's a, a thing in front of me and my body says, you know you would like that? Your body wants to eat that piece of chocolate. Yeah, I don't want to eat chocolate. Chocolate's not good for me. You know, so you decide you're going to walk down the street and as you're going down the street, you're going past a chocolate shop. And what's the first thing that comes out of the chocolate shop when you're walking past the chocolate shop? The smell of chocolate. Well, you walk down there and all of a sudden something's got you by the nostrils. You can smell the chocolate. You turn around and you look through the window and what have they got there? A beautiful display Aniseed rings with chocolate around them. Or Turkish delights with chocolate around them. Or raisins with chocolate on them. Nuts with chocolate around them. Nougat with chocolate. Chocolate with chocolate. It's just chocolate. White chocolate. Brown chocolate. Black chocolate. It's chocolate. So now not only do your eyes see the chocolate... Your nose smells the chocolate, but your mind now is thinking, do you know how much you're going to like eating that chocolate? You know, this is the immaterial part. You have not sinned. And feeling those things is not sin. But acting upon them is sin. Being controlled by them is sin. And so James says it's when desire is conceived, and it uses the word conceived because the word conceived means to make you pregnant with. It also means to seize and to take one as a prisoner. So when the chocolate and the desire for the chocolate seizes you and takes you as a prisoner, you become pregnant with chocolate. 
He says, it gives birth to sin. It's got an offspring. Now, up until that point of time, you haven't sinned. You smelt the chocolate. You saw the chocolate. You looked at the chocolate. You thought the chocolate would be nice to eat. You could almost taste the chocolate in your mouth, but you still hadn't tasted the chocolate. You still hadn't put your hand out and taken the chocolate. You have not sinned even when you have conceived. You've gone down the road towards sin, but the sin is the action of it. But it doesn't mean that I can sit there and meditate about eating chocolate. You know, thinking about it is as good as doing it, as far as Jesus says. For if you look at a woman to lust, you commit adultery in your heart. If you eat it in your mind, you've eaten it. If you go down the road and you see the chocolate and you can see yourself eating the chocolate, you've sinned because you're eating the chocolate in your mind. But just to feel like you want to eat the chocolate and smell the chocolate is not sin. Having those controlling you produces the desire within you which seizes you and takes you by force. It's the Philistines that come into the field and they grab you. And rather than throw them off and say, away Philistines, away from me, and you take out your sword, hack them down, you say, oh, lead me on Philistines to wherever you want to take me. Lay me down on the lintel field. Do whatever you want to me, Philistines. That's the sin. Resisting the sin is not sin. Giving in to the, to the desire is sin. He says, and when it is given birth, he gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Now, sin, when it is full grown, it talks about this whole idea of maturity, growing up full. You keep on doing the wrong thing, you keep on sinning, in the end, there's a consequence, and that consequence is death. Death. Romans chapter 8, verse 5 says, And those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things that the flesh of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. He says, to be carnally minded or fleshly minded. Now remember those two words, flesh is the word uh, for that immaterial part that has the desires and stuff. And minded is what has in the mind the thoughts and the purposes. So to have your thoughts and your purposes on the things that your body wants is death. Let me say that again to you slowly. To have your thoughts, your mind and your purposes on the thing that your body wants the desires of your body, that's death. Because we're made to have our thoughts and our desires and our purposes on God, the Spirit, not on the things of the flesh. To be carnally minded is flesh, uh, minded is death, and but to be spiritually minded, there's the word pneuma, which is the breath of God, is life and peace. So here's the consequences of the sin problem. Jeremiah tells us that the heart of man took a blow. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful. The word deceitful means to deceitful, sly, insidious. It means uh, slippery, foot-tracked. Uh, foot-tracked is an interesting word because if you look at a hill and it's just beautiful green grass, uh, nobody's walked up it in the morning. Then after a day, if there's a dozen kids that decided to run up to a, a tree house on the top corner, you'll see a foot track where they all run. And if they keep on running there for days, you'll have a, a bare piece of ground right up to the tree house there. 
And that's what the deceitfulness is. It creates a tract in our minds. It creates a path in our thinking, a path that's easily walked. So we sin once and we walk through and we put footprints in the grass. That's the once. We sin twice. We put more footprints in the same track. We sin three times. We start to wear the grass out. We sin 103 times and pretty sure there's just bare earth there. Well, which way would you walk? You'd walk along the foot track. It's so easy to walk that way. Everywhere else is scary. It's on green grass. We just walk in the track that's been walked before. So when we start to sin, it's a slippery track and we stay on it. We don't ever get off it. We say, well, we don't want to do this anymore. We don't want to sin anymore. We don't want, you know, we have to walk in a different path. We have to walk in a different track, a completely different path. It's scary, you know, because no one's been there before. It's a new way. It's a new and living way made for us by God. Okay, here we have Genesis chapter 3. So this is the consequences. He says, as soon as you eat of this, you will die. So we know that we've died. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 says, And you, he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sin. So God says you are dead when you are in your trespasses and sin. There's no life inside of you. Have you seen a dead person? How many people have seen a dead person here? Raise your hand if you've seen a dead There is no life in that person. You cannot raise them. You cannot speak to them. You cannot you know, prod them. You cannot kiss them and make them feel anything. They are dead. So in your sinful state, you must recognize that you are complete. Completely dead. There's no way I can convert you. There's nothing I can say that can change you. No one can help you. You are locked in to death. And if it wasn't for the grace of God and the mercy of God, you'd still be dead. Because there's no way out of that death. You can't choose to follow God. John tells us that it's not of the will of man. It's of God. So if God brings conviction into your life, you want to thank God for the conviction that you're feeling because you'll never feel it otherwise. He says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. God said, I choose you. And when he chooses you and you feel him choose you, you better respond because you may never feel that again. You're dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's a spiritual thing. There's a demonic thing there keeping you dead. Don't think that you can go up and argue with a person about your faith and get them alive. It won't work. An argument, a good argument will never achieve anything. Even if you win the argument, they're still not going to get saved. They only get saved when God speaks into their hearts and they hear the voice of God telling them inside to turn and then they respond to God and say, I'll give my life to you, Jesus. That's the only place that they'll get saved. You know, that, that's why prayer is important. That's why intercession is important. That's why getting on your knees and praying for those who are lost is important. It's not by the words of your mouth that change. It's the Spirit of God that works in them that changes them. We should pray and intercede for those that are lost. And if you're lost, I had Wendell come and say to us on a Tuesday night, we were both talking about how in our past we felt dead inside, but it was praying people, praying mothers, praying family that kept on praying for us, that brought us back into life. Thank God for praying people. Amen? It says, all men are spiritually dead. Psalm 14 verse 3 says, They have all turned aside. They have all together become corrupt. There is nothing good. No one, there, there's no one who does good. 
No one at all. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as though through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, he said, thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. So everybody's dead. Well, what about children? Are they dead? Here's the big one, you know, like if we're all dead and you die, where do you go? Hell. What about kids? What about kids? If kids die, do they go to hell? If they don't give their life to Jesus, do they go? Well, some churches think that you're dead, you're spiritually dead from Adam. So if you don't give your heart to Jesus when you're a child and you die or you're, uh, you're aborted or anything like that, you're going to go straight to hell. And they, they think that because we're dead from Adam. Listen to what it says. There's an age of moral awareness and an age of accountability that, that tells me that that's not going to happen to those who are before the age of moral awareness. Uh, look, if I believe that you're going to die and go to hell, then I'll, I'll baptize infants. And the reason I'll baptize a baby is because I don't want them to die and go to hell before they can actually ask Jesus into the heart. So I'll, I'll sprinkle them and I'll say, they're Christian now. But you know what? They're not Christian. You just sprinkled stubborn water on them and you said they're Christian so you don't have to deal with the fact that they may die and, go, die and go to hell. Baptism is on the confession of your faith. It's not on the sprinkling of a child. It's the confession of your faith. You've got to believe that Jesus... And you've got to bring a child to know Jesus at an early age. There's an age of accountability. Jesus faced that age of accountability in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 15. He sat on his mother's wound, it says, and when he was eating curds and honey, when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. That's the age of accountability. When a child is the the age where he knows to look at the, and he knows right and wrong. Now for Jesus, that was very early. He's sitting on his mother's lap eating yogurt and honey. And he chooses between right and wrong and chooses Right, not wrong. Oh, we come from Adam, so we choose wrong, not right. But that happens at an early age. And after that happens, we want to bring that child to an understanding of Jesus and what Jesus did as quickly as we can because up until that point of time, before that time, they're not accountable. Why are they not accountable? Well, this is what it says. In Romans chapter 12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin into the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, And then it says, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where there is no law. So up until the time that the law was given, sin was there, but it wasn't actually held against man. Imputed. What's the word imputed mean? To reckon in, to set it against one's account, to lay one's charge or imputed. So God didn't actually say, well, you knew that it was wrong because I said it was wrong. He said, you know what? You're ignorant, so I'm not going to lie to your account. Look, when children don't know what is right and wrong, the baby in the arms has no understanding what is wrong, is not able to be held accountable for someone else's sin. That's wrong for starts. And doesn't even know if they do the wrong thing themselves. So God is not going to be unjust and send a child, an aborted fetus. fetus. He's not going to send it to hell. That's, it doesn't say, what does it say? It says in the law, it says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. So we don't die because of the sin of Adam. We don't die because of the sin of our father. We die because of our own iniquity. We die because of our own sin. And when we reach that sense of accountability, we understand what we have done. That's when we're accountable before God. What time and age of that is that? 
Is it 17? No, I think it's a bit before 17. Is it 15? I think it's a bit before 15. What age is it? Is it six? I think it could be before six. Is it five? I don't know. I don't know. All I know is tell them about Jesus and get them loving Jesus from a very early age. But I know a child in a womb that's snatched from a womb is short-circuited to glory. That's what I believe. Aborted babies go straight. And there's more aborted babies than there are living babies. I believe heaven's full of them. Why? Because it's not just to say that God would judge them on the basis of Adam's sin when they're done. He said in his own law that it's not right. And he said he's not imputing it. So that's my position with regard to baptizing babies. The consequences of sin are clear. There's a knowledge of good and evil, and the knowledge of good and evil, there's a guilt of knowledge of sin. There's the hiding that we talked about. There's the, the human attempt to cover their sin. There's the blaming and doing good works, even trying to do good works to cover it. Remember, uh, Cain and Nabal were there offering up sacrifices, and, and Cain thought that his offering of good works was going to be acceptable, you know? Even the sowing together of fig leaves wasn't enough to cover it. You know, they thought it might have been a nice little thing to do, but no, God had to actually kill an animal and cover them with the skin of an animal. An innocent one died to cover the sin. A picture of what was coming in Christ. And of course, there's the pursuit of the Holy Spirit, where he comes to and says, where are you? And who told you that you'd sinned? That's God, the Holy Spirit, coming to us. They're the consequences of the sin problem. What's our response to this? Well, I think the first thing that we've got to do when we, when we face guilt is to deal with the guilt. Acknowledge God's willingness to forgive. It says in, in Psalm 51 verses 1 and 2, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This is, this is David after he slept with Bathsheba. This is David after he's committed adultery. This is David after he's done a big... He, says, he comes to God and he says, You know, God, you want to forgive me. He acknowledged God's grace and his tender mercies. You know, we do something wrong. We sit in the corner, we hide. God's going to kill me now. The first thing of dealing with a sin problem is to acknowledge God's tender mercies, that God is gracious and he wants to forgive you. Acknowledge that first before you acknowledge your own sin and say, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to go to hell. That's the, that's the condemnation. Stop. Think about how gracious and how wonderful our God is. How much he wants to lavish his grace upon you. How much he loves you to pour himself out for you so that you can have mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Oh, his great splendor and his great loving kindness. You just sit there and think about the immenseness of God's grace toward you. Acknowledge that. How good is our God. How gracious and merciful is our God. Acknowledge the responsibility of your own sin. Say, I did wrong. Don't point at anybody else. Recognize you're the one who did it. Your spirit tells you. You got it inside. You know what you did. Bring it up and say, I did this. I did this. I acknowledge it. Take responsibility for your sin. Don't hide behind your mother. Don't hide behind your father. 
Don't hide behind the society in which you live. Don't hide behind some other excuse. You were beaten when you were a child. It's not good enough. There are no victims in the kingdom. You're all villains. Take responsibility for your sin before God. I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me, says David. Then confess your sin. That means you have to actually say to him, I'm sorry. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't sit there and say, I can't even mention it. I can't even talk about it. Talk about it. Talk about it to him. Go somewhere and find somewhere and start writing it down. Write down till you can't remember any more else. Sit down with a pen of paper and start writing down, this is my first sin I can remember. This is the second sin I can remember. This is the third sin. And the Holy Spirit, help me, are there any more sins? Oh, yes, there's five more. This is the, I get to the end of five. Lord, is there any more else? Oh, there's another 15. Oh, right, okay, let's keep on going. Write and write and write and write and confess and confess and confess and confess until all of your sins are gone. Don't just say, oh, forgive for my sin and there's hope the whole lot has gone away. Become detailed so you understand what is sin and what is not sin. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak into your life so you know exactly what to itemize and what not to itemize, so you know exactly what you did is wrong. Say, what is it that I specifically did that was wrong? And he will tell you, write it down and say, I'm sorry for this. If it was abuse, I'm sorry for the abuse. If it was lying, I'm sorry for the lie. Whatever it is. Acknowledge it to the Lord. Make it mean something. Make it mean something. And then repent. Now repentance is not saying, oh, I'm sorry, well, I'm going to go on with life now. Repentance is a real thing. It's a thing that means turning 180 degrees. It means going in a different direction. It means changing the way you think. That's why I'm telling you to write all the sins down that you can ever remember and say, sorry, God. The reason Why? Because it's going to change the way you think. It's going to change the way you feel about sin. If you don't say, oh, I've sinned, and then you just say, oh, I'm sorry for my sin, and it's just one big lump, and you haven't itemized all the different things that you thought was, you think, you know, you said, I'm sorry for all of my sin, but you're watching TV. Is that a sin? I never really thought about that. But did you feel convicted about that? Did you feel some challenged about that? Well, then maybe it's a sin. You ought to write that down. But if you don't itemize those things down, you don't deal with sin specifically, you know what? You tend to gloss over them and say, I don't know whether that's sin or not. Repentance means you identify that as a sin and you turn away from it. You walk in the Jesus says, bear fruit. He says, I've come to call, not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. That means have it coming out of your life a difference. You know, he used to do this, but now he doesn't do that anymore. He used to go that way, but now he doesn't go that way anymore. He used to swear and cuss, but now he doesn't swear and cuss anymore. He used to drink and get drunk. He doesn't get drunk anymore. He used to lie and tell fibs. He doesn't lie and tell fibs. He used to watch TV and porno. He doesn't do that anymore. Why was he doing? He reads his word. He loves Jesus. That's what he does. Why doesn't he do that? Because he identifies those things as being sin and says, I don't want to do those anymore. I'm turning away from that. I'm turning. You don't identify them, you'll never turn away from it. Just turn a blind eye to it. Identify it. Pick it out. 
What is it that stumbles you? It's the little fox that stumbled the vine. It's not the big one. Oh, you didn't commit adultery. Oh, how good are you? Well, you've got pride, haven't you? Well, deal with the pride. The sin problem. It's the, this is humanity. From the Bible's perspective. Our response to God is to accept his forgiveness. And so I say, oh, isn't it wonderful? You know, Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so has he uh, cast or removed our transgressions from us. You know, that's a long way. So you've now confessed all of them. You might have taken you an hour or two hours to write that list down. Write through that list now from the beginning to the end with a red pen. I am forgiven. I have been cleansed. I have been made new. Write through every one of them. I am born again by the Spirit of God. Take the time, think it through, and accept that he's taken the guilt of that. You know, you were, all these things lined you up at the wall. All these things set you under the wrath of God. Now he says, I'll give you my life and my peace now. He's taken you out from under the wrath of God. Now he put under the grace of God. He's forgiven you. When you stand before him, he stands and says, hi, Mark. And I say, but I, I'm scared to stand in your presence because of my sin. What sin? What sin? All the sins that I have ever committed, Jesus. I paid for them with my blood. I died in your place. You are free to inherit eternal life. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Exactly what you're saying, David. You don't have to put yourself down. There's no condemnation. You're free. You're free. A beautiful life of freedom. No guilt. Oh, you messed that up again. Walk with Jesus. Walk in the Spirit. And you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. God wants you to raise yourself up. To walk with his Holy Spirit every single day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Every passing moment, I want him more and more. We just want to walk with Jesus. We don't want to listen to the body. We don't want to listen to the flesh. We want to live in the Spirit and let the Spirit control us. Then we are truly sons of God. Amen? Daughters of the living God. Let's stand. Father, I just thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and to understand your word afresh. Lord, within each heart here, Father, there is a condition. Some of us have dealt with the sin issues and others have not. Lord, I, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you just speak so very clearly to each life here, Father. That you'd help each individual understand that there's a place that they can live which is different to the place that they have been living. And that you are speaking to them right now, Father. Drawing them by the unction of your Holy Spirit to walk and live in the Spirit. 
Lord, I pray for this congregation that they would be holy. Lord, that this congregation would walk holy before you. They would follow you and follow your steps every step of the way. Keep them from the evil one, I pray. Put your shield about them, Father. Help them to be led by your Spirit on a daily basis. We ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.